If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Corporal Clarence Smoyer. Smoyer served in World War II as a tank gunner and became the hero of Cologne after defeating a German tank in an astounding duel that was caught on camera. My name is Clarence Smoyer, S-M-O-Y-E-R. I was 20, 21, when we went into uh, Omaha Beach, uh, when we landed over at Omaha Beach. Uh, originally, I, I was the assistant gunner. I, I would load the, the machine gun, 30 caliber machine gun over my side, and also the 75, 76 we had usually. I, I don't know if I pronounce it correctly. Villers Fassard was the first combat uh, that Third Armored uh, got into. And we were told we just had to go into this village and straighten out the lines, push the Germans back a little bit. Well, uh, we lined up getting ready to go. And uh, I remember grassy and, and wooded area around there and saw the rifles sticking in the ground with the helmets on top, uh, which indication of a casualty there. But our lieutenant, we had a second lieutenant uh, as platoon leader, and he got up on the fender on the front of the tank was a tiny little fender. He stood up there to brief us. And as he was talking, there was a shot in the background. He rolled onto the ground, a sniper gun, before we even got into combat. But uh, he he wasn't killed. He was wounded, but they hit nerves in his arm so that he was sent back home. So consequently, we went into battle the first day without our platoon leader. However, it might have helped us out because we were in reserve. They put us in reserve. And the other two companies uh, did the attacking. We went down into the village, and they had told us it'd be a short engagement. We'd be back by time of the year, uh, evening meal. Well, it was dark. We were still down there, dark. I think they say it took two days to push the Germans out of there. But we lost quite a few men in, in down that little village. At that point, I was loading the gun. Whenever they fire, they they tell me what kind of shell they wanted, arm piercing or uh, explosive shell and whatever they call for, I put in. But kept you real busy, very busy. You didn't have time to, to breathe right. It got very hot in there and fumes from the, the shells exploding, you know. You know, you had the, the engine noise. You, you had that and, of course, the firing. Firing was uh, 
a lot of a lot of loud noise in there, machine guns chattering away. Well, like I say early on, we thought it was the best tank in the world to begin with, and uh, a lot of people were fooled, including Mr. Cooper. He told me that himself. He said, I was one of the people that recommended that tank. And he said, after the battle started and I saw what was happening to our tank, he said, I changed my mind. He even said he wondered how we were going to survive or how we were going to win the war the way we were getting knocked out. The only way, well, when they knocked one out, there were four sitting behind or five sitting behind to come up a line. I think really everybody was scared when you, you went in like that. Uh, and especially like the first time. Uh, well, I, I don't think you ever really get over it. You're always scared. I, even toward the end of the war, like when the tank commander would go to be briefed, he would come back and he smoked a pipe. And he, he couldn't hold the pipe steady in his mouth. His pipe would just bounce. Well, I knew who was going to lead over the hill that, that next time. I always knew who was going to be because he, he gets so nervous he couldn't hold his pipe still. But that but toward the end there, we used to do most of the fighting going down the road, you know. And it was hard first going over the first hill or around the first corner. Usually we used to rev, rev the tank up, go as fast as we could, and See what happened. A lot of times we ran right past the roadblocks before they could get to man their guns. We were all, all complaining that our tanks were no good. They were no match for the Germans. Some of the, some of the high-ranking officers wanted, wanted the lighter tanks. I heard many times uh, people saying the heavier tanks, like our Pershing, was no good. It was too slow. Uh, I never saw anybody pass us when we were going down the road. Nobody wanted to get up ahead there. We were hit in Paderborn, which was Germany's Fort Knox. They taught all their tank crews at Paderborn. But we got hit there, and it was in the muzzle brake of the of the 90-millimeter cannon, you know, the muzzle brake in the front. It hit on the side there, burned through, and the explosion set off the, the gun. When I fired, the projector went out and the 90 always let a big ball of fire come back in the turret. And our tank commander, his eyebrows and eyelashes were always all singed from that ball coming out the hole where he was. But anyway, he, he saw the, the fire inside there and he thought the tank was on fire. And he hollered, bail out, we're on fire, bail out. So. The three of us went out the turret at uh, the top, and the driver and assistant driver went out the escape hatch on the bottom. Uh, we got out, we're crawling uh, in a, a, a little ditch along the hedgerow, and they, they were trying to shoot, get us with a machine gun. The Germans were firing across, they're zinging across our head, and we, uh, you can get very, very close to the ground when you have to. <laughs> but anyway, we were crawling away from the tank. Somebody, I don't remember which one, was turned and looked back and saw the tank wasn't burning up. The M26, I said, nah. So we decided we better get back in there. It's safe for at least the machine guns. <laughs> the machine guns else can't get you. 
But we got back in there and the Germans kept firing more Panzerfausts. But to begin with, before we got back in, the top three went in over the top, the driver went in the bottom, and the assistant driver was crawling underneath, and the driver didn't realize he started to move the tank. And I never, I didn't remember this until I met him last year. I've been looking for him since the war. I found him last year. But he said, you don't realize how low that is under there. He said, that tank was pulling my nose along, rubbing on my nose. He said, I, I thought I was a goner, but uh, somehow or other they realized that he wasn't in yet, and then he came crawling up and, and got in with us. But then we continued. The Germans were firing from behind a raised road. Uh, we were at the railroad station, and uh, the road that went over the railroad tracks, the bridge that went over it, well, it was a raised road, and they were behind there. We couldn't really do anything. I tried to get the shells to burst in the tree so the shrapnel would go down. didn't have any luck, but we kept moving back and forth and to the side just to get away from it because they, they must have a whole bunch of them over there. They kept firing and firing. Anyway, suddenly, uh, early, my tank commander he, my nickname was Smick to him. He yelled, Smick, a tank. And he grabbed my right shoulder, which was a signal to turn to the right. I, I swung completely around to the rear. A German tank was coming down behind us and had a, a real free shot at us back there. I don't know why he never never fired, but I, I swung around, fired, and, and knocked him out. But... Uh, most of our company was in the railroad station, coming across the field in toward Paderborn. They, they all got knocked out and made their way to the railroad station. And they didn't realize that we had knocked out this tank. They looked out the window and thought, he's going to get them, you know. But uh, finally, they, they, somebody realized that it wasn't moving anymore, and uh, it was knocked out. But one of the guys... I never, never looked into the tanks after we knocked them out like that because I was I'm worried that might slow me down the next time I had to pull the trigger and think about what I saw inside the, the other tank, you know. But this time I did. I opened the hatch and looked in, and the assistant driver was laying in his seat. He was dead. I took his P-38, which I have today. and uh, But uh, one of them got out while we were still in the tank. He got out and ran down the street. I fired over his head. He flopped down in the street. I, he lay there, and I, I could see his eyeball. They looked like they were like silver dollars watching us. <laughs> but uh, he, he stayed there a long time, and finally I looked out of the sight uh, on the side, and he got up and started to run down the street. And I, I let him go. I, I couldn't shoot him in the back while he was running away. I figured he's out of the tank. He's not going to bother us anymore. But with with that story, uh, one of the guys, and I think it was John Danforth, who they quote in books, and, and, and uh, General Griffin addressed our Third Armor Association one time, and he spoke of John Danforth complaining that our tanks were no good. We should have better tanks. He said, I already had two of them knocked out from under me. 
And I believe John Danforth was one of the men that came out of that railroad station. His tank had been knocked out there, and he came out and later gave me a bottle of champagne for, for getting the German tank. But a couple of days later, we left Paderborn, and I don't recall what the name of the next town was. We were crossing a field, and my control, we like I said, we, we got, since we had the biggest gun, most of the time we were up at the front. But uh, we were crossing this field, we were in the lead, and my control broke off. There was a, a rod, about a three-eighth or inch round rod, where the handle was mounted on. Turn it side to side to traverse, and the triggers were on there for the machine gun and the, and the 90 millimeter. Uh, anyway, it broke off. And the tank commander radioed to the captain and told him what our problem was. It broke off and couldn't control a gun. Well, he said, just use a manual, crank it around there manual. Well, with that big gun hanging out there, as soon as the tank would lean to the side, that thing would take off. It would almost tear my arm off uh, trying to hold it there. The tank commander called back, told the captain, we just can't handle the gun like that swinging around it, you, there's no control over it so the captain said okay face the gun forward and lock it in place and then instead of leading the column down to that next town drop back in the second place well we did and i think john danforth who was talking about i think his tank crew took our place at the lead and of course with that locked we had no no way to fire, really. The tanks, the lead tank was in front of us. We couldn't fire up that way, and we couldn't. The only way you could turn would be turn the, the whole tank. But uh, anyway, we, we followed the first one down, and as we approached the next town, uh, a German infantryman popped up as we passed him. He popped out of a foxhole of the Panzerfaust, and he hit us. Luckily, not in where we were. He hit the back corner and uh, damaged the reservoir the tank for the automatic transmission. We automatic on there. And all the oil ran out, and, of course, the tank stopped. It wouldn't go after the oils out of the transmission. So the, the next tank banged into us and, and pushed us off the road, pushed us to the side. And, of course, we bailed out, uh, and we got in another ditch, crawling along the ditch. Safest places where you can get down a little lower, you know, but they, there, too, mortars were cracking all around, and machine guns were firing. And finally, a half-track, our, our company half-track came along, and he stopped, and we started to climb over the top, over the side, and they grabbed us from inside and pulled us in and then took us away. But this tank that took our place, the lead tank, he went up and turned into the town. As soon as he turned the corner to go into town, there was a German tank down there, fired, knocked him out. And the, the three men in the top were, were killed. Uh, if, if it were John Danforth, who I thought it was, the third tank that they knocked out from under him also took him along with it because he didn't survive it. 
somehow or other, they, they broke our company up and sent us with different units. They, they made like little task force. Uh, and uh, I think ours was the only medium tank with this group. There were like half tracks and scout cars, uh, lighter, lighter armored equipment. But uh, the first, it was toward evening, they sent us to this little area in a field. And they, they formed a circle. We were in the center. And as it got darker, you could hear the German equipment going over, uh, right out over the hill. They were traveling down the road. Uh, that went on for hours and hours, a lot of equipment going along the road. But finally, we heard a tank coming closer and get closer and closer. You could hear the tank squeaking. Finally, he came right up to the corner of our, the field we were in, and it was dark already. We couldn't see exactly where he was, and of course, he couldn't see us. But uh, he parked there and shut the tank down and slept with us overnight. Well, he, I guess, didn't realize we were there, but we knew he was there, and we got up before it got light. And we had an idea where he was, so we had the gun turned in that direction. As soon as I could see through the sight and see the, the German cross on the side, I put the sight right on there. We fired and knocked him out. Uh, I didn't, don't know about the people in there. I don't know if they were in there or if, if maybe they'd realized before that they were with in the field with us and just took off, or I never looked. I never looked. They, they could have all died in there. I don't know. But any, anyhow, uh, after that took place, then they sent us out. There was a, a sunken road between two fields. We went down there, turned left, and then a right. There was higher ground ahead of us, and the, we went up this little incline and uh, the, the front of the tank went up higher and I couldn't really see what was out and down. I, but there was an explosion and either tank or any tank gun fired an armor-piercing shell and hit the, the gun tube right in front of my sight. Uh, uh, hit the gun tube, ricocheted over the top. Fortunately, if that had been a couple inches to the side, I, I always looked through the telescopic side. It was right over there. Probably would have got that thing in my face. But anyway, it hit, and we heard the sound, and we didn't know at first where we were hit. We knew we were hit, but we backed off, got out, and looked, and it just like took a, a real big spoonful of metal out of the gun tube. So we... Uh, called the, the captain and, and told him what had happened. And we were afraid to fire the gun because we were afraid the tube might, gun tube might be collapsed. If we fire, the shell might lodge in there and everything would come out the back end, you know, inside with us. And he agreed with us. To, he said, don't fire the gun. Just use the machine guns and come back to the area where you were before. Well, we came back to that sunken road at the corner of the field. We stayed there, and German infantry had started coming across the field. Like they kept coming in rows, and I kept cutting them down with a machine gun with thirty caliber. And 
seems as soon as I got one road down, another one was right behind. It kept coming and coming. And they I, they were trying to overrun us, I, I think. Uh, but uh, we kept firing and cutting them down. And then pretty soon they started with mortars. And they, uh, they a lot of mortars came in and real bad explosions. Uh, uh, there were couple infantry guys that crawled under our tank for protection from the mortars and they prayed. I never heard anybody pray like that in my life. They they made all kinds of promises to, to the man up there if, if he would just get them through that. And I often wonder if, if they really did get through it and if they fulfilled any of those promises they made. But uh, I never heard anybody pray that loud. We, we heard them inside the tank real good, real good. They, they would talk loud. But anyhow, finally, with the mortar barrages, one of the mortars fell into an open-top scout car. And the men were screaming in there. They were all hurt in there, and they're screaming. And Faircloth, which was my tank commander, the first tank commander, he jumped out and ran down the sunken road going to help them. He was going to go down up the hill to help them. And uh, two mortars fell right beside him and cut his one leg off and threw him up on the bank. And the medics came shortly after that, and I asked him if he, if he was dead, and they said, yeah, he was killed instantly. Anyhow, uh, we had to operate with four-man crew instead of five. I used to slide out of the seat and look out the top and then go back and fire the gun. But it, we would have been in, in bad shape had they brought a tank up there because we would have been faced with trying to fire the cannon or sitting there and getting letting them knock us out, you know, or else get out and run like all heck. <laughs> but uh, eventually we, we kept firing and firing, and the infantry stopped coming. And, uh, of course, after he was killed, it, it eventually quieted down. I, I think they gave up and... Figured they're not going to get across that field so easy, you know. But uh, he, Faircloth was uh, a very nice man. He was one of the nicest guys I met in the service. And, but he was a brave, brave man. Whenever ever there was a problem, he was, he was right out of the tank. And we told him many times, you're going to get hurt or killed like that because you get out and run around. A sniper, anybody could get him, you know. I had been with him since since I came to the Third Armored, and like I say, he was one of the nicest nicest men I met. He was a staff sergeant. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. 
We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. First, we got to Blatzheim. There's a little village of Blatzheim before Cologne. And we had a cross a, a field to take the town of Blatzheim. And they sent us out there, going across there in a row, you know. That, that, from my experience, that wasn't the best way for a tank to fight. It was better going down the road, go as fast as you can, and, and maybe surprise them. But anyway, out in the field, you get slowed down more, you know, the, the tracks digging. Although our tank, the M26, had a wider track, and we could handle the softer ground better. Also, I said, we had the automatic transmission. You didn't have to clutch or uh, to shift gears. You just pull the lever front and back. As we went across the field, they opened up with... I, I assume it was anti-tank guns camouflaged in the trees. We never could find them. But they, the tanks kept getting knocked out, and we, they'd shoot a one. We'd be backing up and go across the front, and he'd shift gears, and we'd go forward, and one would go uh, over the back of us. And that's, that's how the only way we survived there. We kept going back and forth, and they drove us back. I believe they drove us back two times to the point where we started. And finally, the last time we went out, started to fire phosphorus uh, shells into the trees. And the, the white phosphorus created smoke. Also, when it exploded, and I didn't know this at the time. I knew, found out about this after the war. A friend of mine knows a German doctor, and the German doctor told him German troops, troops, feared the white phosphorus shell more than anything we had because when it exploded, that flew all around. If it hit on, it, it burned right away. You know, they were burned. But anyway, we fired into the trees with phosphorus, and we finally made it across there and took our object, objective and headed to Cologne. As we were approaching a city, uh, they must have been like, like the suburbs. I remember tall buildings on our right side, and we, we got in a, a terrible artillery barrage there. It, it was like they were bombing us there. You wonder if you're going to survive or not, you know. Uh, anyway, like uh, the artillery shell or a mortar shell landing right on top of the turret is... It's almost it's a death for the tank commander because he's standing right there with his his head up there. And that happened back in the hedgerows when a mortar landed there, and he he was like mush when they tried to get him out there. He, they said they couldn't lift him out. Anyway, they <laughs> they uh, hit us with a lot of artillery there, and we finally moved ahead more. And I remember. 
one of the lieutenants got on the phone and he said, gentlemen, I give you cologne. Let's knock the hell out of it. And of course, we we started firing to the out to the left. Cologne was on the left side there. And we started to fire into there and we went down. There was an underpass where they had pushed trolley cars to block us. And there we had to stop and drag them out of the way so we could go in the other pass. Uh, and there were 88s around there. I, I a picture in my album there. The, the man said that he, they had some confusion in their tank and he didn't stop. He kept going full blast and ran up uh, into the wooded area and there were three 88s there and he said he thinks he he scared the guys away that they thought he was going to run over them. But uh, anyhow, we uh, went into Cologne and uh, there was like mortar fire, sniper fire and uh, so we got into into town, and uh, they stopped for some reason or other. They stopped us there just before an intersection, and uh, cars and uh, camouflage cars were coming in from the right side, and we fired the machine guns and uh, cut them down there. And uh, suddenly, I looked to the left, and I see the front and of a German tank coming out beside the building. And by the time we got an armor-piercing shell into the chamber and swung over there, he backed away. He must have seen us and back, backed up. So we started to fire into that building, which he was a side of. I, I thought maybe if we fire armor-piercing shells, they would go through the building and maybe still get him, you know. But uh, evidently, he, he just kept on backing up and went all the way down to the cathedral. Well, as things quieted down, then we went down the streets and, and they they tell me this, the streets were like a wagon wheel with the spokes all going to the center at the Dom Plaza, right, for the cathedral. Each street led in like that. Well, uh, one company, I believe it was F Company of, of 32nd, I'm not certain of it though. They went down the street to our right and as we went down toward the cathedral, this Jim Bates, I spoke to you about Jim Bates, was he got ahead of the, the front line troops with his camera. He, he was down at the a street where he could shoot in at the, the plaza, Dome Plaza. And he saw the Mark V sitting there and thought it was destroyed. He was filming it when it opened fire and knocked the tank out on the other street, the street over from us. And that's where the, the three men were killed. And they radioed over to us and asked us if we would go down and try and get him, surprise him and get him, because his gun was pointing at them, and we would come down, and he's supposed to be looking away from us. Uh, we were to fire, go to the intersection, and I was to turn the gun right, because his gun was so long, you couldn't turn it out to the side to go down. You know, had to keep it forward, 
And as soon as I could turn the gun to the right, fire, and then turn back and, and put it in reverse and get out of there in case we didn't, didn't knock him out. Well, as it worked out, we went down. Uh, like I said, the gun was forward, and as I came to the intersection, I turned, and the driver, he he had his periscope turned looking up that way. He saw saw at first that, that the, their gun was coming around to meet us, and when I got there and looked through the side, I like looking right into the, the barrel of their cannon. He was supposed to stop, like I said, and then fire back up. Well, when he saw that gun coming around, he didn't stop. He floored it, went, put it all the way down the floor as fast as we could go forward. And I fired first one, first shell on the run, hit him. And then we stopped and fired another one. And then the third one, third one, it caught fire, exploded and started to burn up. But, uh, if maybe if he had stopped there, we might not, we might have been the ones burning up there, you know. And he kept going. And, and like I say, when I turned and looked up there, it was like looking into that that, that hole and that, that uh, gun tube looks mighty big when you're looking right at it. So anyway, it started to burn. And I knew two, two of the crew got, I saw them go out. And I, I, I didn't go back and look in that afterward because I knew some of them died in there, and uh, somebody had told me that the three of them, two of them were burned up inside, and the gunner, my first shot hit by the gun shield and ricocheted down and went in, cut his legs off. And Bates, the photographer, tells me that he crawled out, he got to the top of the tank and couldn't go anymore. So he, he burned up on top of the tank, two burned up in there. And he, he told me that the two that got out, one ran down the street, he, he fell over, died. And the, the other one, he turned and went behind the tank and he fell over a bicycle there and died in the spot there too. They were, all, all of them were badly wounded anyway. But I, I, Spend a lot of times wondering if if any of them survived, you know. And it when I got the video from Tate from Bates and he told how they died and uh, it, it hurts. It still hurts, you know. You, even though they were the enemy, they were still humans. And like my cousin was killed in the war and my wife's brother was killed in the war. And I know both both the families there that, that really harmed their families. They're never the same after that. But I often wondered how many how many of those death notices I, I send out because I, I a lot of them and a lot of times. For a long time I I didn't talk about it. not at all. My wife or my kids, nobody knew anything about what happened during the war. Never talked about it until in later years, when we started to go to these reunions, they encouraged us to record our stories 
because they said the history is being changed. And if you don't record your stories, it's, it's going to be changed. They won't even know what, what happened. But uh, that was, oh, maybe eight years ago or so when they started to push us to talk about the things. And then, then I started to tell my wife uh, what happened. And the, the kids didn't know until Belton's book came out and they read the book. Uh, they didn't know much about it before, before that. But it's, it, for me, I don't know about anybody else, but for me, it's hard. I, even though at the time they were the enemy and uh, you had no, not much feeling for them, but uh, later on for me, it, it was hard. It was hard. I always think about back there at Mons where they kept coming across the field. I you know, must, must uh, did a lot of damage to them there. I talked to a doctor at, at the hospital, VA hospital in Allentown. And he, I, I think his name was Simbrot, which to, to me sounds like it might be a Jewish name. When he came into the room, he said, Mr. Smoyer, before I start examining you, I want to tell you, I'm very proud of what you fellas did for the world when you were in World War II. And uh, he said, just think what would have happened if you hadn't gone over there and Hitler had taken over everything. He said, it would be a different world around here today than it is now. But he, he said, I'm very proud of what you did anyway, you fellows. And uh, he gave me an examination. I, I tell you, he really gave me an examination. He gave me going to all different doctors for tests, uh, x-rays. <laughs> but uh, he appreciated it. Anyway, I, I say I, I believe he, he was Jewish because that sounded like a, a Jewish name to me, which he might have more feelings for, for us. I, I did my job. I did my job. I said, anybody else, anybody else in, in the gunner seat there, they, they would have done the same, same as I did, I think. I didn't, I, after the war, after we started to go to reunions, I met a man from Bath, Pennsylvania, which is 25 miles away from my hometown. In fact, he, he was instrumental in getting me started to go to the reunions. But he used to, when he found out that I was a gunner in the tank at Cologne, he always used to say to me, Mr. Smoyer, you saved my life in Cologne. You saved our whole crew. He said, we had a light tank. We were no match at all. And we had orders to go down and get that tank. He said, we, we were no match for him. We, we would have been killed. I said, I really... I didn't have time to play hero. I said, I saved my life and our crew's life. And I said, you came along for the ride. You were just lucky enough to go along for the ride. Cause you truly, you, you don't have time to think about anybody else. I, I never had time to think about hero or anything like that. I was the only, only original from our crew, our original crew still with the, E-7 tank at the end of the war. They were all were killed now. 
uh, first in, in that uh, police gap, or close that gap. Well, they lost so many of the crews along the way, or the men from the crews, that they start taking like a gunner and make a tank commander or the driver makes a tank commander and everybody move up and get replacements for the assistants. So uh, anyway, uh, first first of all, uh, our gunner went and that, that put me over in the gunner's seat and we got a replacement. Then they took the driver and made a tank commander on him and we got a new another replacement for our driver. But... Uh, like I say, even even those guys that came in, they they were no longer with us at the end of the war. We they had gone, moved on to a different spot. I was the only one from the original crew still in E7 at the end of the war. That was Corporal Clarence Smoyer. To learn more about Smoyer, check out the New York Times best-selling book about him and his division, Spearhead. You can also watch the footage of Smoyer's face-off with the Panther in Cologne via the link in the show description. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.